Blood on the Tracks is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Phil Spector was a musical genius, one of the most successful record producers of all time. He is now sitting behind bars serving a 19 years to life sentence for murder. This is his story, told by his so-called friends. This is Special Agent Paul Ramon with the Federal Bureau of Investigation working case number 004-10-7419. Case subject is Spectre Philip Harvey. This information pertains to a period ending November 13, 1977. Interview subject is Cohen Leonard Norman. Interview number 6-6-6-719-777. Recall number 6, October 30, 2006. state that I found Phil in was post-Wagnerian. I would go as far as to say that he was less like Wagner, more like Hitler. And the atmosphere was one of guns, I mean, that's really what was going on. Guns, 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 and more guns. The music was subsidiary. It was an enterprise. People were armed to the teeth. His friends, his bodyguards, everybody was drunk or intoxicated otherwise. I was just holding on for dear life. My family was breaking up at the time, and just to show up was rough. And then I'd have to go through this ninth-rate military film noir atmosphere. I remember one time with the violin player. Phil didn't like the way he was playing, so he walked out into the studio and pulled a gun on the poor guy. He didn't spill any blood in there, thankfully. Let me tell you, you could see it. The carnage. The psychological carnage. You could see the blood on the tracks. Chapter 5 Phil Spector and Leonard Cohen I wouldn't say that I was terrified that first night at Phil's mansion. Don't write that down. Don't let the record reflect terrified. It was more like I was frustrated and annoyed and put out. I was tired and just wanted to go home. I was there all night, as you know, that's a well-worn tale. I think we all have a tale like that, don't we? All of us who worked with Phil. We all have that one night at Phil's mansion tale. I was there with Suzanne. We'd been together almost 10 years at that point. Not quite, I guess. The kids were a few years old by then. This is 1977. Things weren't great with us. I can't say if they were ever really great. I sang about it that time and I tried to leave you. I closed the book on us at least a hundred times. When I first arrived at the place on La Colina, I was already fragile, drinking heavily, dipping my big toe into Buddhism at Mount Baldi. I was moving in multiple directions at the same time, reaching, wandering, searching. I didn't really know what was going on. It was Marty Matchett who set the whole thing up. He was my lawyer and turns out he was Phil's lawyer too. Both Phil and I hadn't put anything out in a few years. 
We were both a bit lost at the moment, I suppose. We were both Jews, both sons of immigrants, both lost our fathers when we were nine. Marty saw it as a simpatico pairing, even if people on the outside looking in saw otherwise. So when you sign on to work with Phil Spector, you go to the big house first, up the hill from the strip. Very regal Hollywood, you know? Lording over it all from above. Very castle in the air. The music was subsidiary. It's got this big fountain out front, a pool out back, and the ominous barbed wire fencing gives way to welcoming gardens, your typical Hollywood opulence. It was a dinner party that we were invited to, me and Suzanne, and a few others were there as well. The night wore on and people left, and like I said earlier, I was tired. It was nice to chat with Phil, put in the time and all that, but I wanted to continue another day. It was late. I stood up from the table and thanked him for the food and conversation, complimented him on the house. I told him that we would be leaving. Phil had other plans. He snapped his fingers at the people he had working for him. Yes, men, though some of them had a bodyguard air to them. His friends, his bodyguards. He snapped his fingers in their general direction like a man who had snapped many a finger in many a general direction and said, don't let them leave. And these men locked the doors and then they stood near us at the table where I had sat back down with their holstered weapons in plain view. People were armed to the teeth. You don't want to leave now, do you, Leonard? Phil asked me. Why don't you sit back down and stay a while? His voice was somewhere between wounded friend on the playground and vindictive bully plotting his revenge. He would always strike a balance between those extremes in my mind. Though I suppose balance is too forgiving. He swung emotionally to one side or the other. He swung hard and definitively for a moment, a definitive moment. In that moment, he stood at the head of the table, his fists firmly on the table's surface. His fists were helping him steady himself. He must have felt taller than he actually was. I sat back down, and Suzanne was sitting down. His yes-men were standing there too, a handful of them, silent, yet it was obvious what they were there to do, and what they could also do if needed. Suzanne was plenty disturbed at the situation for both of us, and at first she thought it was a joke. But when she realized that Phil was dead serious, she panicked a little. I took her hand in mine to steady her, to ground her. Things were so shaky with us at that point in time. This whole being held hostage nonsense was the last thing I needed. Like I said earlier, I was just put out. And I figured, if I'm gonna be put out, I may as well be productive. May as well be proactive. The whole room was tense, so I suggested we sit down at the piano and start to hammer out some ideas. No time like the present. And that was the start of our collaboration. I can't say I've ever written while being held hostage, before or since. I also can't say whether the caliber of the songs we produced was worth it in the end. When the sun rose the next morning, Phil's men unlocked the doors of the mansion. When Suzanne and I anxiously walked outside and returned home, she made me promise I'd never go back there again.
It had been a few years since my last record. I was trying to determine what I should do next, what kind of a record I should make. I went back to Hydra, the island off the coast of Greece. The place wouldn't let go of me. It doesn't let go of many people who visit. Hydra was rooftops that looked like burnt oranges, a sea that seemed to drift off into mythology. Hydra was Marianne. Once you lived on Hydra, you can't live anywhere else, including Hydra. Eventually, I came back to the U.S., rented a house in Brentwood, close to Sunset Boulevard, relatively close to Phil Spector, though I wasn't completely aware of that at the time. I went to L.A. because Roshi was there, my teacher, a true Zen master. He was at the Zen Center on Normandy. I thought Roshi would provide some balance to my life, that maybe he would keep me on track, keep me out of trouble, keep me from getting in my own way. Roshi really wanted me to move myself to Mount Baldy, take Suzanne and the kids, and immerse myself in study. And I'll admit, the slowdown was needed in the self-reflection. I already had few indulgences in my life. But true indulgences are like habits, you know? They die hard. And Mount Baldy would whittle the remaining few away. One indulgence was travel. I allowed myself to go anywhere I wanted at any time. And the trade-off is that I had very few possessions. All I needed was a bed, a chair, a table. Another indulgence was the company of women. Hydra may have been a small island, but it was overrun with company. Mount Baldy would take away the indulgences, take away the wanderlust and the other lust. But the time just wasn't right. Let me say it this way. In hindsight, the time was probably right, but I wasn't ready to admit the time was right just yet. I was just holding on for too late. I figured being in close proximity to Roshi was good enough. I could learn from him when I felt like it. I could reach out to him when I needed to. But I could keep one foot in the world of indulgence for a little bit longer this way. While I was out on the road touring behind new skin for the old ceremony, that's the record before my collaboration with Phil, I played a residency at the Troubadour in West Hollywood, true blue LA territory. This is the place where Tom Waits, Elton John, and Joni Mitchell all began. It was a five-night run, two shows a night, and every single show was sold out. Phil attended one of the shows. He was there with Lenny Bruce's kid. We chatted briefly between sets. He looked to me like a man who had been constructed by a team of people who had been asked to create a Hollywood record producer from a backstage closet full of costumes and props. His hair was a big, frilly puffball. It came all the way near his shoulders, and it was gray, which conflicted with the color of his drooping handlebar mustache, which was black. The frames of his tinted glasses eclipsed his eyes. The lapels on his shirt looked like they should be registered weapons, they were so sharp. This was 1975. Phil had been in a serious car accident just the year before. He was driving his Rolls Royce down Melrose, and he hit another car head on. It threw him through the front window. He had to have multiple plastic surgeries. The state that I found Phil in was post He told me this later. He told me he was still picking pieces of glass from his face years later, even during our recording sessions. He would be standing there, ordering around one musician or another, and then he'd just pause, raise his hand to his cheek or his chin, and pull out a reclusive shard. They would just work themselves out, 
piece by piece. He told everyone that the crash made him deaf in one ear, that Brian Wilson wasn't the only half-deaf genius in town anymore. But it hadn't. He confided that to me in a whisper one day in the studio. Another one of his pranks, I suppose, that he orchestrated solely because it seemed to bring him joy. Some sort of grotesque joy. Phil was always messing with people's minds like that. The way he looked, the way he acted. And then there were the times he wasn't messing around. And those were the times that really snuck up on people. Because only in the moments when Phil was being dead serious did anyone think he was messing around. Take the night we were held hostage at his house. After about 10 minutes, I realized that it wasn't a prank. Marty Matchett told this story about an incident at the Beverly Hills Hotel, and this was also in 1975, when Phil was arguing with a woman outside the lobby. It got pretty heated. She screamed something at him, something like, get away from me. The valet nearby heard the commotion and ran over. Obviously not knowing who Phil or anyone else was, not that that matters, and asked what was going on. Well, you know what happened next. Phil pulled a revolver from the holster inside his jacket and pointed it straight at the valet's head. Get the fuck away from me, he warned the valet, and then repeated the threat. Get the fuck away from me! It didn't matter if you were some nobody valet at the Beverly Hills Hotel or one of the many musicians working in close proximity. Phil's pranks had no loyalties and his sudden bursts of hot-headed temper had no boundaries. Everyone was a target, even me. I was just holding on for dear life. I'll never forget the day Phil pulled a gun on me in the studio. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. pulled his piece on Bobby Bruce first. Bobby was the violin player. Phil kept interrupting Bobby's playing to tell him to play a different way. Whatever words of encouragement or disapproval that Phil was offering, Bobby wasn't listening. He was doing it the way he wanted to do it, which, of course, was the way Phil did it too. So it came to a head, as things often do. Phil pulled the piece from his holster underneath the suit jacket walked out of the control room and into the studio and pointed the revolver at Bobby. Play it the way I told you to play it, Phil screamed. Phil didn't like the way he was playing, so he walked out of the studio and pulled a gun on the poor guy. Now Bobby grew up with guns, you understand. Guns didn't scare Bobby the way they could scare the uninitiated. A big shot Hollywood producer with a frizzy misshapen wig on his head and a piece in his hand didn't concern Bobby. What concerned Bobby was Phil's disrespect, his disrespect for guns, which he obviously didn't know the first thing about, and his disrespect for Bobby as a player. That was it for Bobby. He probably gave Phil the finger as he walked out of the studio. The making of Death of a Ladies Man, that's what the record would be called. The making of the thing was extremely intense from the get-go. Phil and I wrote something like 15 songs in just a few weeks. And then we went straight to the studio. First Whitney Studios in Glendale, and then eventually, or rather inevitably, to Phil's beloved gold star in Hollywood. And this was June of 1977. But we were drinking, a lot. Phil's bottle of Manischewitz was omnipresent. He'd pour it in a plastic cup and drink it with a plastic straw like a child would have his orange juice. 
The man wasn't just a dilettante with guns, he was with booze, too. His focus was all over the place. He lost focus often. He wasted a lot of time in the studio, which of course conflicted with his reputation. One day, the door of the studio flung open, and in walked Bob Dylan and Allen Ginsberg. Dylan had a woman on each arm, a half-empty bottle of whiskey in his hand. But we were recording a song called Don't Go Home With Your Heart On, and Dylan and Ginsberg wound up singing backing vocals on it. We listened to the playback so loud that day that one of the speakers blew up. How Phil could be so particular with a violin part, so particular in fact that he would pull a pistol on the musician just to get it right, and then be so loosey-goosey with random appearances by songwriters and poets, it was all so confusing. But then the sessions were never really about music, were they? Or about control, about impulse, about being adrift in the moment. And in that moment, picking a piece of glass from your face or meditating in between cans of beer. It was obvious from the first night at Phil's mansion his game was about control. And he maintained his control with a legion of guns. I laughed a lot in order to keep myself from being overly terrified. I suggested to Phil that perhaps I would hire my own bodyguard and we would have a shootout on Sunset Boulevard. Real Wild West, real Hollywood. But we were in the middle of cutting the record. I can't recall what song we were working on. It was either Memories or True Love Leaves No Traces. But we were listening to the playback of the song. And despite our drunken attempts to the contrary, the song was actually sounding great. We were pleased. Phil was a little too pleased, it would seem. He stumbled slowly towards me where I sat at the control board listening back. One hand clutched the bottle of Menashevitz, and the revolver was in his other hand. He was waving both of them around. One of Phil's bodyguards, George, had told me that while his gun was loaded, Phil's really was. But still, a man waves a gun around in a cramped studio space, and you don't stop to wonder if it's loaded. So Phil's walking towards me, humming the melody of the song we're listening to under his breath. He takes the arm with the bottle and wraps it around my shoulder. And then with the other hand, he pressed the butt of the revolver into my neck. It was cold. He pressed so hard that it felt like half of the gun was lodged beneath my skin. He leaned in close and said, Leonard, I love you. And then he cocked the revolver. Now I'm not Bobby Bruce, so this particular moment did create a bit of alarm on my part. Every night, Phil would take the tapes with him. He didn't trust anyone else to be around them. And when he had finished recording, he was finished with me too. He didn't allow me to attend the mixing sessions, never let me hear the finished album before it was sent off for mastering and release. That moment in the studio with the gun, for him, I think it was both a moment of love and a moment of finality. I had given him what he wanted, and for that he was grateful. But I had also lived out my usefulness, and now he was through. The gun to my head was a big metaphor to him. The moment he symbolically blew my brains out. Blew them out because he was in control, and also because now that he had used me up. He didn't want anyone else using me. I was his, and he could put a gun to it all if he wanted. I didn't know it when I walked out of the studio after the last day we tracked vocals, but it would be the last time I saw Phil. I was just and if I'm being candid, which I believe I have been all along, I would say that the idea of never seeing him again did not displease me.
March 1993, Los Angeles. Phil Spector read the letter with equal parts flattery and indignation. They wanted some words, an essay perhaps, a statement at least, something they could include in a book that would be published next year to celebrate Leonard Cohen's 60th birthday. Phil would be lying if he said it still didn't sting a little. It stung a lot, actually, and the years that had passed had done a bit to dull some of the pain. But it was still there, the sting, the pain, the possibility that, despite all of his work and success and strokes of brilliance, Phil Spector was a failure. And the source of that sting, the reason he could possibly be a failure, was because of so-called artists like Leonard Cohen. Leonard never understood what Phil was trying to do. He just didn't get it. He just didn't listen. If only he could have listened to what Phil was trying to do back in the cramped confines of Gold Star in 1977, then perhaps they both wouldn't have the stain on their legacies. And that's what Death of a Ladies Man was, Phil thought. It was a stain. It should have worked, it could have worked, but Leonard was more the two-bit backstabbing con type than Phil assumed he was. Phil had read all the things Leonard had said about him after the album was originally released. He read them all from the comfort of his hermetically sealed icebox of a home. I don't think he can tolerate any other shadows in his darkness. That was the line Phil couldn't shake from his head. He'd never forgive Leonard, and he never let him forget it either. Phil had made the worst-selling album of Leonard Cohen's career, and he would never let anyone forget that it was Leonard's fault. So he grabbed a pen and paper and composed the requested pian to Montreal's finest poet of love and loss. Phil wrote all about Leonard Cohen's closet love of the Partridge family, that Leonard maintained this image of a female conquering meaning of life monastic intellectual, but the deep down, for real and for true, come on, Leonard just wanted to get happy. Underneath that brooding, moody, depressed soul which Leonard possesses lies an out-and-out Partridge family freak, Phil wrote. Phil folded the letter into an envelope, licked the flap to seal it, and smiled. Fuck you, Leonard, he thought. Fuck you and the dour fucking horse you rode in on. Back in 1977, during the death of a ladies' man sessions, Spector had described the music he was making with Cohen as the polar opposite of Partridge Family Pop. This is punk rock, he yelled to Cohen, the two of them standing in the control room listening to the playback at ear-shattering volume. Letter didn't know punk rock from a hole in the wall, so he just smiled politely and nodded along. He wasn't exactly sure what he was listening to. Phil had assembled upwards of 40 musicians for the record, multiple drummers, guitarists, keyboard players, percussionists, and a veritable army of backing singers. The sound enveloped or suffocated, depending on your take, Cohen's narrative vocals in a way that was unorthodox and challenging. As the record floundered on store shelves and took a beating from critics, Phil walked away with the blame firmly placed on anyone but himself. Punk rock? Nothing about Phil Spector was punk, and neither was the record. It was another go-round for Phil's schmaltzy predilections. He was a man out of time, a man stuck in time, and he was repeating the same folly over and over again. He made the mistake with John Lennon, and then again with Dion, and now with Leonard Cohen. All within the span of a few short years. He needed to get hip, get with it. He needed to take a few giant strides into the future if he wanted to make anything of note ever again. He remembered that Barney Kessel's boys, Dan and David, had been going on and on about a band from New York that they said was on the cutting edge. They were reminiscent of the past, but sounded like the present, and they looked like the future. Some of their songs even sounded like the Ronettes on speed. 
and their songs were played at peak volume and at peak speed. Most of them barely lasted a few minutes. It sounded like just the thing Phil Spector was looking for, the project that could make him relevant again. And as luck would have it, the Kessel Boys told him the band was scheduled to play a residency at the Whiskey in a few weeks. It was right down the street from Phil's place. It was like it was meant to be, and the future was waiting for him just down the hill to where the neon hummed into the wee hours on the Sunset Strip. If he squinted his eyes, he could see it. The future, the carnage, the future psychological carnage. He could see the blood on the tracks. This episode of Blood on the Tracks is brought to you by 27 Club, a podcast that I host on musicians who died at the age of 27. Season 2 featuring Jim Morrison is now available, as is Season 1 with 12 episodes featuring Jimi Hendrix. Subscribe to the 27 Club on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, this episode was also brought to you by Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast also hosted by yours truly. Episodes on the Rolling Stones, Jerry Lee Lewis, Cardi B, The Grateful Dead, Jay-Z, Prince, and many, many more are all waiting for you right now. Just search Disgraceland on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcast. All right, this episode of Blood on the Tracks was written by Zeth Lundy and scored and mixed by Matt Bowden. Hosted by me, Jake Brennan. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker and Henry Lunetta. Blood on the Tracks is produced by myself for Double Elvis in partnership with iHeartRadio. Sources for this episode are available at doubleelvis.com on the Blood on the Tracks series page. If you like what you hear, please be sure to subscribe to Blood on the Tracks on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio app, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to win a free Blood on the Tracks poster designed by Nate Gonzalez, then leave a review for Blood on the Tracks on Apple Podcasts. You can hashtag Blood on the Tracks on social media, leave your review there, and we'll pick two winners each week and announce them on the Double Elvis Instagram page. That's at Double Elvis. Go ahead and give that a follow. All right, as always, you can find me blabbing about other crazy rock stars on Disgraceland and 27 Club, and you can talk to me per usual on Instagram and Twitter at DisgracelandPod. Rock and roll. Thank you. Oh, dang it. <laughs>